Welcome to episode 9 of the Film Inventories podcast. This is Jamie Benning speaking to you from South East London. This time around I speak to Kenneth George Godwin. Kenneth is the author of a book I have here in front of me, The David Lynch Files, Volume 2, Dune. Six months behind the scenes on one of the biggest science fiction movies ever made. So Ken was there down in Mexico with a cameraman creating a documentary for the film. And it's a very tantalising book, lots of detail about what was going on on set, but also a unique perspective of somebody in a situation they didn't necessarily have full control over. And Ken himself admits that he was very inexperienced at the time. Hope you enjoy my chat and I'll be back at the end for a bit more jabbering on. Ken, can you tell me about how you ended up working for David Lynch on June there in Mexico? What was the path that led you to that point? In uh, the summer of 1980, when I first saw Eraserhead, I became really obsessed with it because it had such a visceral uh, impact on me. And I kind of mulled it over for months. And then I finally wrote an essay to, to try and, you know, sort of formulate why this film had such an effect on me and what it might mean because it you know it's a fairly uh, obscure sort of film so I, I tried to uh, uh, piece together what the images actually were trying to communicate and um, I sent that essay to a magazine called Cine Fantastique which uh, specialized in genre films uh, I'd, I'd subscribed to it since its first issue back in the early 70s and the publisher responded saying he thought my essay was really interesting, but it's not the kind of thing they published because it was, I guess, it had a, a bit of an academic sort of tone. Um, but what he did without actually checking with me first was he sent that essay to David Lynch because he had been trying to do something about Eraserhead for a couple of years and Lynch was basically ignoring him. So he sent my essay to said, look, we take your work really seriously. And uh, for whatever reason, uh, Lynch said, OK, I will. I will uh, talk to you about the making of Eraserhead. Uh, but you've got to hire the guy who wrote this essay to do the article. And I had I had no journalistic experience other than uh, writing uh, reviews for a, a student newspaper at university. And... Uh, the publisher told me, well, write down a list of questions and we'll get our guy in Los Angeles to go and talk to Lynch and ask the questions that uh, that you need to uh, need to ask, which didn't seem very satisfactory. And Lynch said, no, we can't do it that way. So we had to work out uh, a way to get me to Los Angeles. So I actually had to pay my own way down there. But the magazine paid for a hotel room for a week and a car rental. And I got to meet Lynch, uh, had a couple of really lengthy interviews with him. Two days in a row, we spent uh, three plus hours together in the afternoon. Uh, basically, yeah, I mean, I, I had no experience interviewing, so it was essentially long conversations. And, uh, and then he had given permission to people who worked on the film to also talk to me because they were very, uh, very protective of him and nobody would say anything without him giving their okay. So I met a number of people who'd worked on it that week. And uh, when I came back to Winnipeg, I spent uh, the winter transcribing all my interviews and writing the article. 
And I sent it to Lynch because I had told him that, as you just said at the beginning of this, if I'd said anything in the article that he really didn't want said, I, I agreed to uh, to take it out. And he, he liked what I'd written. Actually, it was my sister who said to me, uh, well, why don't you ask him for a job? Because he was prepping uh, Dune at the time. And of course, I said, well, that's ridiculous. You can't just ask David Lynch for a, for a job. And I thought about it, and actually I got in touch with him and said, yeah, if there's anything that, uh, you know, with my lack of qualifications that I might be able to do on uh, on Dune, uh, I'd really be willing to uh, to come down and work on it. And uh, he actually responded very positively. He's, he's a very generous person, and he's, he's actually helped a lot of people over the years. And I was actually one of the, uh, the beneficiaries of that, because um, during... The next uh, year, that would have been uh, 82, a couple of things came up that were possibly going to work, but they fell through. And then in early 83, when the, the production was really set and it was going to be in Mexico and dates were in place and so on, um, this uh, vice president in the promotions department at Universal you know, they're always jockeying for position, obviously, in the bureaucracy. He pitched this idea of uh, instead of just doing uh, little uh, clips where we send somebody down to record a little bit of stuff and we put together the, you know, the EPK, um, he said, why don't we have a crew, a video crew, on the shoot for the entire duration, uh, doing interviews, shooting behind the scenes, and we could use this for and uh, educational purposes. We could do a making of. We could do so. This was all very new at the time. It wasn't a. Yeah, you know, I mean now it's absolutely standard procedure on any big production, but nobody had actually really done this before. And uh, Lynch's response was, "If you're going to stick a video crew on my set, it's got to be people that uh, he approves and is comfortable with." So he said, "Hire this camera guy from San Francisco, Anatol Patsnowski, who was." Uh, with him at the AFI, and you got to hire this writer from Canada. And I had absolutely no, no qualifications at all, no experience, whatever. And uh, they didn't balk. They sent me a ticket. I went to uh, Los Angeles, met Anatole, and uh, we ended up spending several weeks there. We missed the actual beginning of uh, principal photography because uh, the process of uh, putting together all the equipment and so on, took longer than it was originally supposed to. We were using a new system that uh, Panasonic had just invented. So they, they sort of made a deal with uh, Universal that was mutually beneficial because they wanted to you know, get their system out there. It was a, a, a sort of rival for a beta at the time. Uh, that obviously never actually took off. I think a few years later it had just uh, vanished. Uh, it used standard VHS cassettes, but they ran at uh, six times normal speed. So a two-hour cassette uh, recorded 20 minutes. So it was higher. It was higher quality, but you know, I mean, back in those days, you know, the tapes were not uh, <laughs> were not really uh, great quality. But anyway, we put together this package, and uh, then Anatole and I drove down there in his Jeep, loaded with all our equipment. Um, we went across uh, the border in uh, Arizona, and it was uh, Good Friday. And so 
we would basically just because there's a lot of people going back and forth because it was you know a, a big holiday for uh, you know Mexico being a Catholic country and so on. So uh, we had no visas, we had no papers, we just had a jeep full of all this electronic equipment, <laughs> and uh, we drove down to Mexico City and uh, set up at the studio. And as you you know you read the book, you uh, you sort of know how things went. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I find the book fascinating. For anybody who's listening that hasn't read it, I absolutely recommend it. Um, the David Lynch Files, Volume Two, Dune, and so you you arrived at the studios there in Mexico City, and as somebody who's visited Mexico City a number of times, working there myself as well, I kind of know that it's this busy place of hustle and bustle. Every form of life is there. Um, was that a stressful moment for you to arrive there, knowing that you had this this big job ahead of you with the very little experience? Well. Stress might be putting it mildly. Yeah. Um, I mean, to begin with, just the drive down to Mexico City was uh, was pretty hair raising. I don't know if you've ever been in Mexico and driven driven in Mexico. Um, luckily, I've not driven. <laughs> yeah, narrow roads, mm -hmm. large trucks that uh, don't want to go to the edge of the road because they're going to fall into ravines, mm -hmm. coming straight at you down the road. So you have to get out of their ways. Uh, we lost the uh, count of the number of burned out buses in ravines that we, we mm -hmm. went past. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty crazy. And then we actually arrived in Mexico City at about 3 a.m. And didn't really know where we were, where we were going. We actually parked and uh, went to get some breakfast. And uh, at one point while we were eating, a group of people started crowding around the Jeep outside which had all our stuff in it. So uh, we had to kind of run out and you know, scare people away. Um, <laughs> drove, drove, eventually found our way to the uh, studio. So we arrived there about 6 a.m. and just sat in the Jeep until people started arriving. So, uh, yeah, we were both like, we didn't really know where we were. Neither of us had done anything like this before and uh, didn't really know how we were going to do it. Mm. So, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, so stress is a, a kind of a mild way of putting it. Yeah, not the ideal uh, uh, situation to be in on the, for your first day at work on a job that you didn't know, you know, what it was about at that point. I mean, what was your feeling going in? Did you feel like the documentary was going to be something personal about Lynch himself? Was it to serve Lynch himself, or was it in your mind to kind of show and reveal the, the making of process itself? Oh, very definitely the, the first, uh, mm. both Anatole and I, because Anatole had been with him uh, at the AFI, so they knew each other, and Anatole was an artist mm -hmm. himself. And uh, my interest in Lynch was, you know, it was an interest in him as, a, as an artist, a filmmaker. So for us, we wanted to make a film about David Lynch making this thing, which was uh, so vastly bigger than anything he'd done. Mm. He'd only done Eraserhead and Elephant Man at that point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this was just a massive step up in terms of uh, you know scale, budget, and so on. So we were interested in how does how does somebody who's obviously a uh, an artist who uh, is really you know, minutely concerned with all the details of the work he's doing. Mm -hmm. How does he cope with something on that scale? 
And uh, it wasn't very long before we realized that's not what we had actually been hired to do, that uh, we were essentially assigned to the publicity department on the production. Uh, I mean, you know, if you look at the uh, cast and crew list, we're subsumed under under that, and they were looking for uh, more of the, you know the second you were talking about, like uh, just the how is a big movie made kind of thing. Mm. So there was uh, there was some friction and a bit of conflict along the way, and uh, we actually were told, uh, I'm not sure how far into it now, but uh, we were spending a lot of time on set filming Lynch at work. And uh, we were eventually told, spend less time with Lynch. Go, hmm. go, you know, go film the prop department where they're building things, go film. You know, which, I mean, retro retroactively, I realized, yeah, we should have been doing all this other stuff as well. But it didn't seem like a job because, mm. you know, like, again, I had no experience. I had no context for what we were doing. And Anatole had never really done anything like this before. So mm. for us, it was uh, just a, a kind of a fun personal thing we were doing. So we weren't thinking in the sort of corporate terms of the, you know, the way the people that hired us were looking at it. Yeah. So we were told to yeah back off from Lynch and go do all this other stuff. Despite the fact that you're, uh, you know, the, the reason that they'd employed you kind of changed from doing you know like a personal film about Lynch to something more akin to today what would be called an EPK I guess where you would go and you know shoot particular departments and and draw draw from that was there a sense that you were still shooting stuff that in the back of your mind could make another documentary because obviously I'm sure many of the listeners will know that the film would you know, began began to unravel a little bit, um, and Lynch wasn't having a good time. So, did you feel, kind of, in the back of your mind, you know, there could be something else more interesting than what they have in store for us here? Well, yeah, it's still. I mean, I think even when we were uh, told to sort of focus more on the nuts and bolts kind of thing, I think both of us uh, were still continuing to think that our focus was going to be on how Lynch was dealing with. The, mm. the situation and uh, I mean he was quite happy to have us hanging around the set uh, it, I, th I think we were uh, at some point we, it was almost like we were lucky mascots or something because it was a, right. a connection that he had with his past that mm. uh, whereas you know I'd, I'd say the majority of the people who were working on the film didn't really know who he was they didn't really right. know what he'd been doing uh you know because a, a huge crew like that you're hired to do this job you don't necessarily uh you know look into the uh you know the guy who's uh, who's actually directing the film yeah. and uh in fact uh, uh partway through uh, lynch held screenings of eraserhead to uh, to sort of uh, this is who i am kind of thing mm. And uh, I don't, wasn't a huge number of people who even bothered to come to those screenings. Huh. So, and you know, and I, I think uh, you know, a number of them were kind of baffled by uh, you know what's what's this got to do with what we're doing here? Yeah, yeah. I think one of his biggest interests in what he was doing was the, uh, the sort of textural design of the you know the four worlds 
and mm. how they sort of fitted together. And, uh, you know, it's like different uh, historical references, depending on which, uh, which of the four cultures that uh, you were dealing with. So he was very, very much involved in how the film looked and mm -hmm. so on. And, uh, you know, if you, you just look, well, I mean, Elephant Man is a fairly, in some ways, a fairly conventional narrative film, but it really said obviously isn't. And I think uh, ultimately one of the uh, the big problems from a commercial point of view was that uh, his storytelling abilities uh, weren't really up to a narrative that large and dense. Mm -hmm. So it you know it ended up being a you know too obscure for a big audience. Yeah, sure. Was uh, of course there were tensions on set. Was there much? Uh, was Dino De Laurentiis in uh, Lynch's ear a lot during during the shooting? I know that obviously the presence of Raffaella there became you know an issue, but how much control were they trying to, or how, how much control were they trying to take away from Lynch? Did you get a sense of that? Um, well, Dino actually only visited a couple of times during the shoot, I think. He he was leaving it up to Raffaella. And mm -hmm. it was actually, you know, it was one of her first big solo jobs. Um, it, I, it was one of those weird things that, you know, sometimes happens with, with big productions where they had hired Lynch because of his not being a, a mainstream sort of thing, but being a more quirky artist kind of person mm -hmm. with a, you know, with a, you know, personal vision, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. But they were also making this massive, uh, you know, which they obviously hoped would be the next Star Wars. Yeah, sure. Uh, commercial project for a very commercially minded studio. I mean, Universal is, you know, you know generally mm. noted for art. And uh, so there was a real tension between the art and the commerce. Mm. And the, so, yes, we brought him in to, to add something to this film that we're making, but we can't let him uh, dominate it too much because we have, we have to have the commercial return eventually. Mm. So, so it sort of moved back and forth a bit. And uh, I think, I mean, you know, I wasn't privy to a lot of the... Uh, you know the higher end sort of stuff yes. but i'm i'm sure there were tensions uh which you know increased as the summer went on between uh lynch and Raffaella. Mm. simply because uh you know things were well i mean it, it didn't really go over schedule but you could feel this kind of slow heaviness about the production yeah. And, you know, the people in charge were, you know, we got to get this done, we got to get this done. <laughs> and, of course, Lynch spent four and a half years making Eraserhead, you know, sort of refining every detail and rethinking yeah. everything as he was going along. And mm -hmm. you couldn't possibly do that on a, uh, on a film this scale. So it was just one of those odd things that somebody uh, had thought was a good idea at some point. Yeah. But... Uh, ultimately maybe wasn't the best idea mm. yeah because i mean david lynch is a very distinctive director with you know art, a particular artistic integrity i guess you could call it which is very yeah. important to him and it's it, it sort of from the outside looking in it just feels like he wasn't given the room 
to be able to do that with Dune. It still has his stamp on it, that film, of course, but you, yeah. know, you look back retrospectively over his catalogue now and it really doesn't fit with what we know from David Lynch. And I do wonder what was in their mind when they decided to hire him. I mean, of course, you mentioned, you know, they want, they're wanting to, it to be the next Star Wars in a way for, for Universal and many studios were looking for that sort of you know, the key ingredients for that. And, of course, he was offered a Star Wars film, wasn't he, David? Um, Return of yes, the Jedi. Yes, Return of the Jedi. Um, goodness knows what would have happened if he'd have made that. Um, maybe it would have been a better film, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know that anybody could save that. But yeah. Yeah. No, but um, I still, I, you know, I still think that Dune was actually very important for mm -hmm. his career, as, as awful as his experience was for him. And, you know, he mm. didn't talk about it for years. And uh, uh, I went to a, a thing that he was involved in, I think it was 2002, 2003, um, which was a, a transcendental meditation-based weekend down mm -hmm. in uh, um, Ohio, I think. Oh, Iowa. Mm. And... Uh, when he was introduced at the beginning of the weekend, because he was the you know sort of the main host of the event, and uh, the person introducing him listed off his filmography, hmm. everything was mentioned except. <laughs> so yeah. it was obvious that he had like I want nothing to do with that. I think he's mellowed a bit since. I don't know if you've read his autobiography that came out uh, last year. I, it's on my reading list right now. Yeah, I've been recommended it by several people recently. I didn't even know it existed, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, it's a really interesting book. Um, but there is a there's a whole chapter on Dune, which mm. really surprised me. And uh, and he is uh, you know fairly introspective about what what happened, what went wrong, why it uh, didn't work, and so on. But mm. of course, it was because he did Dune, and it was. It's, you know, such a uh, problematic thing that uh, Dino um, gave him $6 million to make Blue Velvet, which was a mm. script he had been working on for some years. Mm. And that's the film that sort of artistically and uh, commercially created who we know David Lynch to be now. So yeah. that might never have happened if he hadn't gone through the Dune thing and seen that way of making movies. So everything mm -hmm. else he's done since, you know, they're all fairly low budget films, but they're all totally controlled by him. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, you know, he's been pretty successful, obviously. So, so Dune, as you know, it, it might objectively be, uh, you know, a bit of a disaster, but uh, I think it is a key element in his development as a filmmaker. It's the one yeah. that moved him out of being a... Uh, I was going to say sort of more self-consciously artistic, but I mean, mm. his later films are actually very self-consciously artistic, but, but he, he managed to absorb something about how to make something which would appeal more to a, a, a larger audience through mm. the mm. Dune experience. Yeah, it served a purpose, didn't it? And pushed him perhaps back to what he was always destined to do. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think... Um, I think we've all had experiences like that in our life where we realise, oh no, that wasn't a great experience, but I now know what I don't want to do. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's very valuable yeah. in itself, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it uh, totally kept him out of becoming a sort of mainstream Hollywood filmmaker. <laughs> mm. 
One thing we should say, and I don't think it's any spoiler because I think you mentioned it relatively early on in the book, is of course that you never really got to, well, you never got to make the, the documentary that you shot because the footage is supposedly no longer in any archive anywhere. It was destroyed. That must have been a pretty hard hit to take as somebody who'd spent so much time there and had shot so much stuff and had been through quite a, an experience yourself. Oh, absolutely. Um I mean, we had actually tried, we were there for six full months. It was a 25 week uh, shoot. And we shot somewhere around 75 hours of uh, material. And mm -hmm. uh, we tried all that summer to sort of formalize our position because, I mean, we were hired, but nothing was ever, there was no contract, there was nothing signed. Uh -huh. And we were verbally, um, assured that at the end of principal photography, we and all the material would um, go back to Los Angeles, where we would make this, uh, you know, making of documentary, like a one hour or something like mm -hmm. that. And right at the end of the shoot, we just got a directive from Universal saying, pack up all the equipment and tapes, uh, send it back to Los Angeles and goodbye. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so that was, that was frustrating because we had both pretty much figured that we would be, in, you know, another, you know, maybe six months on this project, but uh, mm. that didn't happen. And uh, over the years, I, I tried various ways of making contacts inside Universal to find out what, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what had happened, where, you know, did, mm. did the material still exist? And it was only, um, was, I guess it was almost 10 years ago now, uh, when I set up my website, which I, I mm. put a lot of this David Lynch stuff on my website at that time. Mm. And I got a, an email from uh, a guy in France who did uh, DVD extras. Uh, mm -hmm. And he had worked on the French uh, uh, release. Jerome, yeah. Jerome Wybon, yeah. yeah. And uh, he had worked on their Dune release. Mm -hmm. And he said he had gone looking for this stuff when he was working on that project mm. and had heard uh, directly from uh, Paul Salmon, who was one of the publicists on Dune, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, Salmon had actually a, a year or two after the shoot had uh, tried to find this material. And he was told that, nah, the movie bombed, so we just ditched it. <laughs> this is a long this is a long time ago but it still infuriates me <laughs> yeah i bet uh, like so it's up again yeah. because it's kind of infuriates me as a movie lover and as a, a a lover of you know behind the scenes documentaries and i love the the sort of time capsule um part of it that you were there capturing you know this this kind of seminal film you know that potentially is lost forever. I still, I still hold out a little bit of hope because we hear those stories like, oh yeah, you know when Charles de Lazarica went and did the Blade Runner final cut and they found all of the elements sitting on mm. pallets in archives about to be destroyed. You know, and <laughs> nobody knew they were there, and there were so many unmarked, um, you know, reels of film. And yeah, who knows? You know, one day we might we might hear that. Oh no, I had that in my 
you know, I've had that in my drawer for years or, oh, it's, you know, it could be anywhere. Let's face it. Well, I, yeah, I, I try not to hold on to that hope because I think, <laughs> uh, you know, you'll, you'll go insane after a while. Yeah. But I, yeah. I, I harbored this uh, fantasy for the longest time that, yeah, the tapes were, were, did still exist and Lynch uh, might have a, uh, a slightly better, uh, you know, at attitude towards it and then we could maybe do a hearts of darkness where you know you mm. interview lynch and people uh now looking back on the experience and then fill that out with all this material that uh, was was actually shot at the time yeah because that's the thing with retrospectives is that people have got their kind of rehearsed stories over the years haven't they and it oh, yeah. doesn't necessarily truly reflect what happened at the time, whereas you were there shooting it and there, there's no way of, you know, that kind of cheating us. I love the Sean Young stuff that she released a few years back. Uh, oh, that's super like great stuff. Yeah. Footage. It's fantastic to see. And, you know, I immediately messaged her and said, is there more of this? And I think she immediately unfollowed me at that point because she's probably been bombarded by oh, another yes. <laughs> uh, huge amount of people like me asking that question. But I do find that, that footage um, so tantalising. So... Yeah. yeah, I can understand why it must be uh, really difficult to hold on to any hope that it, it that yours exists yeah. out there. So because of the uh, you know our inexperience and our um, conflicted feelings about what exactly we were doing there, um, mm. I think even though we had seventy five hours, it would probably be difficult to put together just the straightforward uh, the making of Dune. Because mm. I don't think we covered things we should have covered or we didn't, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we covered a, an aspect of something, but we didn't get the other side of it. So you can't really put together a, a more complete picture of, uh, sure. of something because uh, we were having fun hanging out on set and watching Dave do his thing. Yeah, because you, you got to interview quite a lot of the, the main players there. And one of the, you know, I guess one of the sad things in your book is, you know, your relationship with Jack Nance and sad mm. because... He was clearly in some decline with his alcoholism and, you know, was ultimately replaced. I think that's fascinating insight into, you know, what was going on there and just the kind of, just the fractious and difficult nature of being on a shoot in a foreign country, you know, in all that heat with all of those issues going on. And then you really bring it down to the personal level. And I think that's, um, yeah, I think that's a fantastic part of your book. Well, I, I, I'm glad to hear that because... Um... I've always been a bit um, wary, like when I decided to put it out, mm. that yeah, this is just this is just me kind of whining about my condition down there. And for somebody who wants to know about the making of Dune, I'm not sure mm. it actually uh, gives you the uh, the sort of detail and the anecdotes that people are used to. And mm. so it's it sort of makes me. You know, obviously it's my journal, so I, I'm sort of the center of this thing while this whole thing is going on around me. And mm. I was always uh, like, who's going to be interested in that? You know, it's, uh, <laughs> but uh, I've, I've been actually getting some fairly positive uh, feedback on it, so that's gratifying. Mm. Yeah, no, it's um, it really is an interesting insight. And as you say, even though it kind of revolves around you, it all that stuff going on in the periphery, you know, just the struggle that you're going through and the uncertainty of everything, I think is um, is really well communicated by you in your writing. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks. Because it was a book that I've, I, I saw somebody had said they were reading it and I just saw a post on Twitter and I was like, 
why did I not know about this? I only read it in the last <laughs> uh, six or eight months and um, then read it again during during the lockdown here in the UK. And um, yeah, it's become a uh, a book that I've become more and more fascinated with each time I've I've looked through it. And, uh, you know, I, I wish it was I wish I had it in um, ebook form because I want to search out certain bits, you know, um, I believe we can. You, it is, it is it available, is available as an e-book. Yeah. And paperback yeah. and yeah. Yeah. And uh, obviously I've, I've completely lucked out because um, I, I actually like I, I originally put this on my website like 10 years ago and then uh, four Four years ago, I created my own, you know, self-published eBooks, which you know were on uh, Amazon or whatever, and you know, not getting much notice. But uh, a friend put me in touch with um, Bear Manor Media just uh, late last year, and uh, I so I contacted Ben Omar there, and because the books were, you know, they were pretty well ready to go. He said, sure, because, you know, they, they do print on demand. So it's not mm -hmm. really a huge investment on their part. And so, the, you know, the books came out at the beginning of March. And that's when the, the publicity for Denis Villeneuve's remake is mm. really ramping up. And mm -hmm. because of the remake, people are looking back at Lynch's film. And there's some reevaluation going on about that. Mm. So my book, purely by chance, dropped into the mm. middle of all that. And uh, yeah, as you said, you know, it's been showing up on Twitter and uh, I've, yeah. uh, I've been getting a few, you know, fairly positive reviews. So the timing was totally accidental, but uh, couldn't have been better. Mm. It's quite an exciting prospect with Denis Villeneuve uh, shooting the, the new one. And of course, there's a, there's a release coming out of June again on, on Blu-ray. I think, I think Arrow Films are working on that one. Yeah, they're doing the some... 4K Ultra HD, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting, isn't it? There's still this hunger for it because it's such an interesting book. I read it as a as a kid a couple of times, and it was the first time I realised, you know, this came from someone's head. How <laughs> could they create this this world that's so big and so vast and so yeah. detailed, where you have to check the glossary glossary every five minutes to work out what they're talking about? You know, <laughs> it's just, yeah. wow, somebody's somebody's created this. Uh, one of the questions, I suppose, is a bit of a cheeky question, really, Ken, but. How would you have done things differently now, knowing what you know now? Oh, God. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I think I would have uh, really uh, pressed for like a formal agreement with Universal mm. about what we were actually doing. And mm -hmm. um, I think uh, I would have, uh, I would be much more systematic about what we did while we were down there. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, it took me took me a couple of months to sort of realize what we should be doing if we were going to create some, uh, not necessarily a narrative, but something coherent out of what was going on. And uh, I had a lot of conflicts with Anatole about that because I would say, you know, we really have to go shoot this because it connects to this. And he said, I mm. don't really want to shoot that. I'd rather be doing <laughs> this. So I, I think at the start, you need to have some sort of framework that you're going to uh, pull everything into. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I've made documentaries myself since since then, so I, yeah. I have a somewhat better idea of what I'm doing. <laughs> I became a documentary editor uh, about uh, a bit more than a decade after uh, yeah. after my Dune experience. So I yeah, I have a better sense of 
you you have to understand why you're shooting the thing you're shooting right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think we really did. We were just, uh, oh, shucks, this is amazing. Let's just go look at this. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and how do you think the behind the scenes content has changed since since your work on, on Dune? Um, well, I mean, there, there have been a lot of really good um, uh, films made about the making of films, but there's also an mm -hmm. awful lot of very formulaic stuff. Yes. where the interviews, everybody's got their pat comment about, oh, it's so great working with this person or that person. Mm -hmm. And it's just so bland. And I think yeah. it, it sort of became too routine. Mm -hmm. So we were, we were at the other end when it, you know, it, it hadn't been done. So we were trying to figure out what to do. And then uh, as that approach was developed, um, I think there was more of a willingness to... Uh, you know, to show all the warts and, uh, you know, all, all, you know, the, the little conflicts and whatnot. But I think a lot of that's been smoothed out since then. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I find a lot of, uh, uh, Blu-ray extras, uh, just so bland that they're, they're not actually even worth watching anymore. Yeah. It's difficult, isn't it? Because they're so tied to the marketing department. Exactly. Um, yeah that you know it's very difficult to get true representation of what it's like behind the scenes without the studio having their their fingers in that pie and you know and, and ruining the the ingredients there but um you can't be independent can you no and and obviously the people who are funding those uh, behind the scenes things don't want anything to sort of cast doubt on the film that, mm -hmm. that, that they're about so you don't you kind of want to cover up if there are conflicts or difficulties or mm -hmm. yeah so it, i mean yeah yeah they're they're just part of the the huge marketing system now mm. i think you know in some ways for me that i'm not overly interested in behind the scenes stuff of new movies i i'm more interested when a certain amount of time has passed you know 20 30 40 years i've done some of my own stuff on the star wars movies and and jaws and indiana jones because i think enough time has passed to not kind of spoil the magic of the movie you know we've had those movies yeah. all you know for a big proportion of our life and and also we have the opportunity to to talk to the people who are no longer invested in that movie in the same way that they were at the time um i was chatting again i was chatting to charles de lazarique who did a lot of ridley scott stuff recently and he was saying you want to get people either just before they're shooting it or way after they've shot it because otherwise you get into this area where they're either on set and they're kind of unsure about what the film is yet or they're in the press junkets afterwards when they're just reeling out the same old crap every day day in day out for months yeah so yeah i do like the the idea of a retrospective and who knows one day there might be room to do it uh on june I guess it would rely on the fact of somebody digging up this footage in some way, but um, I'm not going to bring that up again because I know it's hard to think about. <laughs> yeah. What was the draw then to those studios at that particular time? Was it a tax break issue? Was it something to do with size or? Well, it's it's a it's a very big studio, so they had the room, and it was in Mexico, so relatively speaking, incredibly cheap, mm -hmm. and uh, the Mexican. Uh, craftspeople were 
enormously skilled so mm. the i mean you can you can i mean you can even see it in the finished film just the uh, the detail the textures of everything mm -hmm. the sets were just remarkable to be on because they felt like mm. real spaces like the um the great hall on arrakis um actually had mosaic floors they weren't like printed and rolled out on the floor. they huh. made mosaic floors <laughs> So wow. that that kind of detail, because again, the labor was so cheap and mm. very skilled. So um, yeah, and you know the the exchange rate with the peso was uh, was just ridiculous at the time. So because they they when I first interviewed Lynch uh, when I was in Los Angeles doing the Eraserhead thing, um, one of the possibilities that they were looking at at that time was to shoot at studios in England and then uh, do uh, some desert location in Tunisia. And uh, you can imagine how much bigger the budget would need to be to do that. Mm. So it, I, I think uh, because the facilities were available and, the, uh, and just the, the human resources were available, um, absolutely, you know, they, they got way more for their budget than they could have uh, anywhere else. But even then, you know, they, they were trying to squeeze the budget for, uh, you know, that's why, that's why Dykstra and Apogee left partway through um, the production because they kept squeezing the effects budget. And he, fi and he finally decided, I can't do good work at this, uh, you know, for this cost. So, you know, they, they brought in other, other effects people. I don't know if I should be saying that. But. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, bold move really by Dykstra, but a, an honest one at least. And um, yeah, if it's it's so difficult with everything where the budget's being squeezed because you just feel like you're being compromised at every turn. And, you know, you get to a point where you just don't want to be associated with the film. I mean, of course, David had his name removed from the TV cut of the film. Um, oh God, that was an abomination. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How yeah. to make a bad situation worse? That's oh, like. I know. I was so uh, when I heard that there was a like a three-hour television thing. I thought, oh wow, then maybe they put back some of the crucial stuff that they took out of the theatrical version, which mm. you know to me was incredibly damaging. The the stuff that they removed, and mm. uh, no, they put some of it back, but they didn't do it properly, and it, it was just. Uh, it was awful, and, and I guess you know there's there's never going to be an opportunity for a uh, director's cut. <laughs> no, we're no. Uh, we're we're stuck with uh, what's there, and I and I actually really like the movie. I you know I uh, I can see yeah. all its flaws, all the you know both in terms of uh, conception and the the you know the final sort of mutilation of it. I'm, I'm totally aware mm -hmm. of all that stuff, but I can't think of very many other movies that so completely create like a, a, an imaginary world in mm -hmm. such detail. And that's what, that's what yeah. I like about it is uh, you, you just feel like you're in this place that exists nowhere except here. It really does feel like it was shot on another planet. It, exactly. I mean, that, that, as you say, those those sets um, you mentioned and the artistry involved, you, you can see it in every single frame, particularly in the in the Blu-ray release. Yeah, I was astounded. But I was used to having, uh, you know, a off-tube copy from Channel Four here in the UK <laughs> in, the, uh, in the late eighties, early nineties, and when I saw it in 
Blu-ray, yeah, just kind of blown away because it really does, it really does stand up. So yeah. after all of that happened, then, Ken, what did you go on to do? What was, what was your career path after that? You mentioned oh. that you, you worked on documentaries. Yeah, well, that took a while to get to. I uh, I actually took a year off after because uh, I I earned enough on Dune to, you know, just I I went back to England and I. Uh, toured around uh, Europe for the summer and so on. And while I was there, I, uh, I wrote a script specifically for Jack Nance because we, mm-hmm. you know, we'd become friends. So I based the character on him and uh, we tried to get that going. And, uh, you know, the, there's a little epilogue in the book uh, describing the weird experience we had trying to get that going. Mm-hmm. And... Um, then uh, I just worked various sort of mundane jobs uh, in the 80s. And um, it was uh, 1989, I think. I um, went on staff at the Winnipeg Film Group, which is the filmmaker co-op here in Winnipeg. And uh, I became the training coordinator there for a couple of years. And... Uh, so I, I, you know, a little more, and and I started making short films of my own, which I had never actually done mm-hmm. before in sixteen millimeter. And it was actually doing the short film, uh, my first short film, that I realized that of the entire process of making a movie, uh, my favorite part was the editing. I I just mm-hmm. loved putting stuff together on a steam back and you know making things work. And so I started uh, editing other members' short films. Because, you know, a lot of people don't like editing. They like doing all the other stuff. So as soon as it became apparent that, oh, here's this guy who's, you know, reasonably good at this. and seems to... So I, I did that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I went back to England. And mm-hmm. while I was there, um, I heard about a, a course in Avid that was uh, being put on at Pinewood. Uh, by a, I can't remember the exact name of the trade organization that was doing it. So it was a three-day intensive workshop. And I actually had a almost a visceral dislike of the idea of digital editing because I like the mm-hmm. film strips and all this kind of, kind of stuff. But I thought, well, I should at least know how to do it. So I signed up for that. Mm. And at the end of the three days, I just loved working on the Avid. And when mm. I came back to Winnipeg, because I'd had that training and it was still fairly new then, I was one of the mm. few people here who actually, you know, could operate the machine. Mm. And I was um, hired to edit a TV half hour drama by Guy Madden, mm-hmm. um, which is a terrible, it's a terrible film. It was just awful. But uh, I, <laughs> I knew Guy casually and I knew the producer of that half hour who uh, I'd worked with at the film group. And so I did it really cheap just to you know, get that experience of cutting a drama. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, we had a National Film Board office here. I don't know how familiar you are with the National Film Board. Um, it's, you know, it's been around since the 40s and, uh, you know, mostly documentary focus. And I just went down to their office to chat with them. They had recently bought Avid and mm-hmm. they were just starting up on a project and so I was hired for a few weeks to uh, digitize material and, you know, just do the, the sort of grunt work uh, mm-hmm. as that project was getting going. And I'd been there only maybe three weeks when the original editor got a uh, movie of the week 
and uh, she just bailed and, and went to uh, to cut that. And so I'm in the room and the director who kind of fancied himself as uh, I can do anything sort of thing, uh, told them to just keep me on and uh, I could operate the machine while he, you know, he did the editing. And I ended, sure. up, ed I ended up editing a one-hour documentary <laughs> again with, it was like the, the whole Dune thing. I had no experience with this stuff. I didn't, uh, <laughs> and I ended up doing some interviews for the, the documentary. Uh, you know, we went down to the States to, uh, to shoot some interviews. And uh, because of, by that point, you know, I, I think I'd shown that I, I sort of know how things go together. And we were filling in gaps in the, the thing. So I yeah. sort of knew exactly what we needed from these interviews. So I got to do that. We finished that. And then uh, for the next uh, almost 15 years on and off, I was doing contracts at the National Film Board, uh, cutting feature documentaries, one hours. I had uh, two years where I was uh, working on a documentary TV series. Like I got 26 or 28 half hours for that. And mm -hmm. so I had a very good uh, editing career for about 15 years. And then the National Film Board basically collapsed here in Winnipeg. And I'd never made like wider connections with the commercial producers around town. And they all had their, you know, their standard editors, go-to editors. So my editing career kind of died around uh, 2009, 2010. And uh, so I made a couple of uh, documentaries of my own. I got a little bit of funding and uh, mm -hmm. made my own movies. And now I have like a regular day job. I work for the government. And uh, I occasionally do a little bit uh, for friends. I cut a friend's music video a year or so ago. And, uh, you know, some friends who needed some promotional stuff for their business or something. So, so it's, now it's just a, a little side, side thing that I occasionally do. But, um, yeah. So it was... Still all, still all relates back to, to that, that time on June in, in many ways, I suppose, that, you know, just knowing not how to do it in some ways as a learning experience. And I find the book really brave and, and, and generous. You know, it's a real gift for people to to kind of dive into and, and, and look at what can and, and, and will go wrong in certain situations. And, and not worry know, about being a complete failure. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, I, I genuinely think it's fascinating. And you, you know, clearly gone on to have a, an interesting career um, beyond that. But I think there's just this really fascinating kind of, microcosm you know a little a little world that you you're drawn into in, in the book um, yeah where can people find the book and uh, do you have a website that people could visit to find out more about you oh yeah i do have a website which is uh, kgfilms.com c-a-g-e-y films um which was my you know, little company i i made to to do my own work so that has uh, links to you know where you can get the book, uh, where you can see my documentaries, which are free on Vimeo, mm -hmm. and uh, it also has my blog, which I've been writing religiously for ten years now. I've I've well over a million words on my website. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, every week I'm posting once or twice about uh, uh, like essays and reviews of movies. Um, the book itself. Um, because it is a print-on-demand, you, you won't find it in um, bookstores. Uh, it can be ordered directly from Bear Manor Media. 
mm-hmm. or uh, Amazon. All right. Well, th- thank you so much, Ken, for coming on and, and sharing, you know, that that story of that part of your life with us. It's one that I found absolutely fascinating and just really wanted to be able to pass it on to anybody. And I hope um, I hope people do dive in and, and, and pick the book up because I'm I'm a huge fan, as I said, of behind the scenes stuff. And it's a it's a perspective that I'd not really seen before. So, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for putting it out there in the world. No, I, I, I appreciate the interest. Uh, I'm, I'm just a little surprised at uh, the response I have gotten so far for that, because uh, as I said, I, I, I never really uh, imagined it would be interesting to anybody. And it, it got published as a companion for my book about Eraserhead. Uh, so mm. it was almost an afterthought, but actually mm. because of the, you know, the current situation with the the remake and so on that's actually the book that's getting uh, more attention thank you ken well thank you i really appreciate uh, talking to you hope you enjoyed my chat with ken there what a nice guy we had a really good chat actually again went on for a short time after we finished recording uh, really is an interesting book. Do do try and pick it up. Um, Ken gave you the details there. KG Films. So for next time, I've got a couple of guests lined up. We'll see which one works out first. Um, but both are quite exciting. Looking forward to it. And the next episode will be episode 10. Can't quite believe it. Thanks for your support as always. Do find me on patreon.com forward slash Jamie Benning. Filmumentaries.com. At Jamie SWB on Twitter. Also on Instagram. And there's a Filmumentaries Facebook group as well. And do share the podcast. Uh, you know, I'm doing this for fun and for a hobby. But I really do hope this can get out to, to more people. So please do share where and when you can. Thanks very much. And I hope you can join me next time on the Filmumentaries podcast. <laughs>